The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. So going to be looking back at the year that was in entertainment, the year that was in sport and the year that was in news. And by way of reminder, this is the year that saw RTE move from sort of business as usual to the departure of their biggest star and the hemorrhaging of cash to the point that they were a total crisis. It's the year that horrifyingly saw riots on the streets of Dublin and us splashed across international news media. It is the year that Joe Biden come to the doll and declare his undying love for everybody in the country. It's the year that Elon Musk put his hand in his pocket for 44 billion quid and bought Twitter and a whole lot more. And to discuss all of that, I am joined by broadcaster Valerie Cox, by consumer editor of the Irish Times, Connor Pope, and by Ireland editor of the Irish Independent, Fionnán Sheen. I suppose we're at the point of Happy New Year, guys. Did you have a good Christmas, Anton? It was wonderful. I enjoyed every minute of it, Connor. Thank you so much. Quiet. (laughs) Exactly. You know, just all warm and (laughs) cosy. Now, let us begin with the RTE thing because the man in large part responsible for the whole RTE thing is with us. At the point at which you began to lead the reporting on RTE and the uh, Tuberty deal, Fionn, did you know that you would be bringing the nation's state broadcaster to its knees? No, I mean, it's been very much the anus horribilis uh, for RTE uh, right across the board. And I never claimed to know that Ryan Tuberty was at the heart of this controversy when I was digging into it back in, in June. The the big name that I thought was associated with it was, was D Forbes, uh, who was, of course, uh, departing from the organisation, left early, uh, had her going away party the night before this bombshell report dropped. What spectacular timing that was to, to go on, on our holidays. Is that so? So it was yeah, the, the yeah. night before was so the goodbye. Thursday night she had a, a going away party in a pub down in Donnybrook and the following day uh, this report uh, dropped from Grant Thornton to the RT board. That day the RT board demanded her resignation. She was suspended the following week and she subsequently resigned. So if there wasn't a big star attached to this, this would very much be about uh, the the managing director uh, of a major semi-state commercial body uh, getting involved in all sorts of corporate governance and financial uh, irregularities within the organisation. Uh, that's where I started but where it went was this is all about Ryan Tuberty and as he said himself he very much became the the face uh, of this entire controversy which meant that it elevated it beyond everything else. Now the year had started out with Ryan Tuberty being basically named again as the top earner within RTE on a figure that we thought was under the, the half a million mark. He then announces that he's giving up the Late Late Show and just going strictly into to, to radio and probably a bit of TV uh, on the side. Uh, but that all changed then on the 22nd of June. Now, did it end up being, Connor, about uh, Ryan Tuberty by virtue of the fact that so many people fell on various swords? Dee Forbes had already quasi-resigned on the cusp of her own uh, retirement. We saw significant resignations from top level within management. So people fell all around, leaving him the only person who continued to fight on. Yeah, I don't know if they actually fell on their swords. I think an awful lot of these people retired on substantial pensions. So there was very little by way of punishments meted out. Uh, but you're right, it, like it, obviously Ryan Tuberty became the touchstone for the entire scandal and that was, you know, it was the Ryan Tuberty scandal when the reality is all that the story revealed, and I say all advisedly there, was the, the, the incredible dysfunction 
within RTE on almost every single level. I mean, from the payments to, to the talent, as they shall no longer be ever referred to, to the buying of the flip-flops. Oh, the flip-flops. I've forgotten stuff. the flip-flops. And it just, like, it just went on and on and on and on and on. And almost every single day from the day the story broke in June all the way through July the story just got worse and worse and worse and then when we all thought oh it's all done and dusted you know they've dealt with the, the, the corporate governance governance issues and Ryan Tuberty's going to be back on the air it all blew up again and Ryan Tuberty was gone and Kevin Backhurst was wheeled in front of all the media to explain that he was a tough no-nonsense dealer and all that stuff and it was just endless uh, and I have to say I have a degree of sympathy for Ryan Tuberty because an awful lot of people were blaming him entirely for what was happening out in Montrose. And like, a small part of it was his responsibility for sure, but the vast bulk of the responsibility was left on the shoulders of people who ultimately didn't pay any price at all for the dysfunction. And of course, one of the big prices that has been paid by the institution, Valerie, has been what has happened with the licence fee. Because RTE, I mean, it is a hardy perennial, RTE always struggles to make it. It's like the HSE, that's its job, is to barely make ends meet but it's completely bunched now. Oh yeah, it's just totally plummeted. But I think there's a reason for that, apart from people just refusing to pay it. I think it's that they are wondering what the future funding of RTE is going to be like, maybe in the new year if the Minister says, okay, you know, we're going to pay it from the Central Exchequer. Then they'll go, why the hell did I pay mine two months ago? So I think there's a lot of people on the fence like that. But I think what we cannot forget in all of this debacle is the ordinary workers and RTE, all the people who put the programmes together, the producers, the reporters, the background people, they have all suffered and out and about doing their jobs even, people are just slagging them the whole time and giving them a rough time and that is not fair. I mean, RTE does produce a wonderful number of programmes, their news service is exemplary and yet they're up against this. It's a very difficult situation. I think part of Ryan Tuberty's problem was that during covid he made himself so much the man of the people and we're all in this together and we're looking after one another and so on. And I think because of that, people expected more. They didn't think they were listening to a man who had a few deals going on on the side. And you know, I'm not saying Ryan did anything wrong, anything illegal, but it annoyed people. And also the arrogance when Kevin Backhurst was about to bring him back and he issued his own press release. I mean, Kevin Backhurst wanted to have full control going back and he didn't want a presenter who just might go renegade on him. He just wanted to be able well, to make... What of that? Because there was a point at which when the that press release came out and when Backhurst said right that's it we're not going ahead with the deal we're not putting it back on air where the, a lot of the smart money would have said well that's Ryan really now in a corner and with a single bound our hero has leaped free into Virgin. Yeah this failure on on, on his part to, to accept any responsibility for any of the happenings uh, that occurred to him was, was a fatal flaw uh, on his part. However, you, you do have to admit he was royally stitched up here for a whole lot of stuff that was nothing to do with him. There is an aspect of it though that was quite firmly in his corner and he, and he should have put his hand up uh, on, on that. Why do you think he didn't? Because that one piece, the central piece of you had a side deal which meant that the salary was understated publicly. I mean, that was just the, the chairperson of RT said that was a, a scheme designed to deceive. Why not put your hands up for that? Well, I have a theory, but I can't talk to you It's New Year's Eve, nobody will mind. The, 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 the whole issue uh, there, I suppose, you, look, you can put it down to, to perhaps um, hubris and, and perhaps just, uh, you know, a, a, a 
an inability to accept your wrong in in any way. You can you can probably put it down to that. I mean, he's he's bounced back in terms of this was going to be a transitional year anyway for Ryan Tuberty. He was going off the the, the late late show. Uh, has ended the year. He'll be starting the new year now uh, on a new show over in the UK, which will be broadcast partially into into Ireland uh, as well. So you know, new beginnings for him one way or another. I have a theory now. And I have to say, I am not. Oh, I, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the inner workings of Ryan Tuberty's mind, so I can't say for sure. But the I, best theories are based on no evidence, <laughs> Connor. Have at it. I would say he was just absolutely enraged to have become the poster child of the scandal. And when he was speaking at the Oireachtas Committee, by the way, which attracted, what, five, ten, fifteen times its normal audience when he was, <laughs> when he was before the committee, um, like he, he, he was saying that he had been effectively cancelled. And it must be really dizzying to go from being like the, the shining light of Irish broadcasting and, uh, and as Valerie said, the person who had guided us all through the COVID pandemic to being this like monster effectively was how he had been characterised by some people. So I would say he was just incredibly angry. The The second report, which largely, which exonerated him, was published and he said, there, I told you so. And I think... I how think did it, it exonerate him? Well, it, it said, like, he said Ryan Tuberty had been found guilty of no wrongdoing. But we still had the same original thing that was revealed about but, having sorry, a side deal to suppress the, the salary. You, you have to break it into to, to two charges, my lord, if you're going to go down this route. Yeah, there, are, there, there was the, the infamous Renault side deal, 75 grand a year. And you can say categorically, Ryan Tuberty and, and others working for him knew all about that. And so to follow your declare, metaphor, that's so bang so to right scope. So that's, that. yeah, you're, you're kind of caught there. Now, there was collusion with RTE and so on and so forth, but you're caught on, the, on that one. On the previous issue of the under-declaration of his salary for three years, that was a conspiracy within RTE to suggest that he was being paid less than he was actually being paid so that politically they could say, oh, look, RTE, we're managing our accounts and so on and so forth, as... They went. The senior management went in on a monthly basis into the Oireachtas and government building and, and kept saying, give us more money. He had nothing to do with that part. So, wholly innocent on one side, not so much on the other. But, you know, I could actually see in a year or two Ryan coming back to RTE because if you think about it, he's a very gregarious man. He's a broadcaster. He loved the adulation that he got in Ireland. He's gone to the UK where nobody even knows his name. He hasn't got a television programme. He's just doing radio and he has said several times he'd like to be back on television. I could well see Ryan coming back to Ireland in a couple of years. And as you said earlier, a lot of the people involved in this, they've either retired or they've fallen on their pen knives or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, is a good way of putting there's it. going to be a big change. There's going to be different management. Well, now, hang on a minute, Valerie. If scepticism had a physical form, it would be Connor Pope in the way that he ex- reacted when you said that. You ain't buying it, Connor. Well, no, he might come back. And uh, why would he? But well, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he won't settle in London. Maybe they won't warm to his Terry Wogan esque charm. I don't know. But like, you wouldn't rule anything out. But I, I have to say, Valerie mentioned the TV license, and I think an awful lot of people were using the Ryan Tuberty scandal to use the the, the phrase of the of the year um, as an excuse not to pay their TV license. They didn't really give a rashers either way. But they were like, oh well, if everybody else isn't paying it, I'm not going to pay it either. So you know, th- and that's that's probably you know. 
the reality of it. I, I don't think people, a lot of people who have decided not to pay it were probably not as annoyed as we might be making them out to be, but they just decided to save themselves the 160. But that's going to be impossible to put back in the bottle. Well, I mean, that's, that's why, why I am Spartacus. That's why public service broadcasting needs to be funded in a completely different yeah. way. And that's why it, and you know what, we can talk about it in, in a lighthearted way or in a serious way, but the reality is this story is deadly serious because we need a public broadcaster that we trust. And also, the story undermined all of us. It all undermined News Talk, it undermined the Irish Independent, the Irish Times, everybody. Because what it did is it gave ammunition to an awful lot of these people who've been pouring scorn on the so-called mainstream media for years. And it says, look at them. Look at these clowns out, out lying to us all the time. And it is problematic. And it does need to be addressed mm-hmm. in a fairly serious way. That's all Fionnain Shane's fault it for having uncovered fault. in the first place. There's, there's, <laughs> there's probably a couple of fallouts uh, as well in that this time last year, it would have been Toy Show the Musical was the Christmas turkey and the RTE wouldn't answer a single question about how much money it had lost and so on and so forth. And it was only through this fallout that we suddenly discover actually it lost two million quid. Uh, it it had really bad uh, audience. It, it was poorly exec- executed. That was the only reason we, we found out about that. So there will be a higher level of anticipation in future when commercial semi-state bodies or public bodies are spending licence fee or taxpayers' money and won't answer questions about it. The other one was politics and the Leinster House actually came out of this quite well. As we saw, the Oireachtas committees were box office. There There were hilarious moments when my county man Matty McGrath. Who are you lying well, to? Who are you lying to? <laughs> and the Dublin Four executives not understanding what he what he was saying. Yeah. Great moment, great TV. Nonetheless, the Oireachtas committees, and even an obscure one uh, like the the Communications Media Committee, they handled it quite That's well. That's a good point. And none it of the grandstanding for no which they had previously been. And there was nobody treated in an unfair no. manner as they well, have done. Hang on, next. Next. If they decide to have a different funding model for RTE, maybe this could take away a lot of the inequity between the broadcasters because, you know, there are other broadcasters, News Talk, etc. They should all be funded as well because they are running exemplary news services and why should it only be RTE? So I think maybe if we have a new model, it will take all of this into consideration. A fine point, well made, checks in the post. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. But you were talking about the Oireachtas committees came out of this well now. I, like for... for I reported on a lot of those hearings over the course of the summer and one of the things that struck me and you probably have experienced this a lot more than I have Fiona is it's almost like the 12 or 15 members of the committee had not been listening to any of the questions that the fellow members had asked Mm. and the same questions Mm. were asked over and over and over again I was screaming at the television but your man just asked it and and it was answered why are you asking it again so I think there was a good deal of grandstanding and there was that same level of I've got two and a half minutes to speak oh but by comparison by comparison to some of the Oireachtas committees of old the questions were just so repetitive but did you notice how smart they were the men were all wearing nice clothes they had their hair combed for a change the women had their hair done there was makeup on are you looking at that? <laughs> Is this the RTE side now? Or are you <laughs> on the side? <laughs> now, much more important things we have to discuss. Like, I know it is, you've all been chomping at the bit to discuss the ascension to the throne of King Charles, royalists all in, in the panel. Uh, we will get to that after this break. Before the break, I was saying that given that they are all such dyed-in-the-wool monarchists, they would very much want to discuss the ascension of King Charles to the throne. A radical change to the institution, a new leaf, a page has been turned, it's a fresh dawn and so forth. 
Anybody want to bite? I, I thought Private Eye summed it up best. Elderly man gets funny hat. <laughs> you know, I mean, the ridiculousness of this. And, and we are quite quite fortunate. We live in a republic. Any citizen of our state can become our, our head of state uh, through uh, elected office for good or evil. Yeah, careful let, what you wish Let's for. just see what, what happens there down, down the line. And meanwhile, across the water, there's this guy who was born into this family, has led a, a very protected and, and gilded life is sitting on a throne covered in gold leaf being handed a, a spectre and an orb behind a screen where he is being anointed and this somehow elevates him to some sort of godlike status. It's utterly ridiculous but it make great TV it all looks oh, no, I no, have no, never heard the word orb said yeah. with such <laughs> it made for the worst television you know people saying oh I loved the spectacle it was horrendous <laughs> and I, I couldn't be less inter- I, there's no way I could be less interested in the royal family I haven't watched crack color. it wasn't it was really dull the only crack <laughs> bit was when he, when he had the pen and he pushed the pen away or grabbed the pen that was the exciting bit but I have a weird thing here because I have no interest whatsoever in the royal family I didn't watch the crown haven't followed any of the weddings but I have been in the presence of all of them because as I, I was standing two feet away from Prince Charles and Camilla when they came to Care County Tipperary I was standing two feet away from Meghan and Harry when they were still beloved I was standing two feet away from William and Kate and I was standing about ten feet away from the Queen so I hope that in some someday in the future there'll be photographs of the royal family and we'll be like who's that really weird <laughs> bloke I'll be like the Zelig character from the Woody Allen film I have, I'll have been in all of their starring moments or Forrest Gump <laughs> <laughs> Forrest Gump is a more modern <laughs> reference thanks <laughs> Zelig is a bit 70s Anton I can do better than that. I have had little chats with both Camilla and King Charles when they came to Powers Court in Wicklow, which was very informal. You know, it was much nicer than these great big events where Connor stands two feet away. And um, like, I shook like their hands. Look, I haven't watched it. I shook their hands and also had a little chat. And Charles and I had a great chat about Highgrove and what he's growing there. And he's invited me to see his plants. So there's one up on you, Connor. Yeah, now, that's a bit, but I the actual invited to see his uh, plants, Connor. I mean, they, it's a joke. It really is. I mean, the royal family is a joke. And if you think about it, what the coronation was all about was this very ordinary woman born into great wealth who then decided to divorce her husband, um, have it off with the Prince of Wales and then get to be queen even though everybody hated her. I mean, that is the triumph. That is the real story that Camilla has become queen. I mean, she was even only meant to be regent or something. And Queen Elizabeth, before she decided to die, apparently said, um, oh, uh, she can be queen. Now, we don't know that she actually said that. I personally think Charles made it up because we've no proof. The woman did not issue a press statement. <laughs> I thought he was a close personal I mean, friend of look, yours. I can't believe you speak totally of him this way. They're dysfunctional family. They really are. I mean, they might be nice individuals on their day off or whatever. But having the... And did you see the thing about the crowns? Did you see why their heads were bowed the entire time? Because they were too heavy to put their heads up straight. And one... Was it Philip Tracy was asked to make the innards for the crown so that it wouldn't hurt their little heads and it would be a little fluffy mm, insert. That's important. But they couldn't stand the weight of it. And there were pictures of Camilla actually with her head drooping. Now, what rubbish is that? I'm, I'm reluctant to move off because the, the passion with which we are dealing with this is both unexpected and very enjoyable. The great coup of the year, though, was King Charles being portrayed by handsome suave Dominic West. 
in the crown, which basically <laughs> portrays him in a completely different manner uh, in, entirely. Uh, he is very dishy, is our Dominic. My, my, also, my favourite royal tippet from the year came from a book that was written about the royal family. I can't even remember the name of the person who wrote it. But he revealed that Prince Charles likes to have his shoelaces ironed. No. And he, and he likes one of his courtiers to put an exact one inch of toothpaste on his toothbrush <laughs> every night before bed. I, I love thinking, it. That's the dream. Isn't that it really is the well, dream. That would be amazing. I can't imagine what the royal footman has to do with his toilet. <laughs> well, remember, the, the groom of the stool was once, was once a, a very popular position if you could get him. There's the oh, thing. Okay, we do have to talk about this and I'm slightly reluctant to talk about it because I think it is still a point of sort of semi-national, embarrassment is the wrong phrase, but, but um, national shame to some degree. The r- riots in Dublin at the end of November, I suppose if we look at big stories of the year, I don't think any of us would have expected to see a situation where international media would be covering trams burning in the centre of Dublin City, 11 Garda cars destroyed, three set on fire, looting in Arnott's. As we look back on it now with a bit of hindsight, what's the take and what is our view? I think the take is that, number one, we were very badly prepared for this. And that is why, you know, I I know she's escaped this time, but despite calls for the resignation of both Drew Harris and Helen McEntee, I think they should have gone because they were not prepared for something like this to happen. I mean, their attitude was, oh, we're living in Dublin, you know, there is a certain amount of crime, whatever, we can deal with this. Well, no, they couldn't deal with this. And when when something dreadful happened, they were absolutely lost. I mean, the night night of the riots, there were Gardaí coming in in their own cars. The Gardaí actually had to stop a bus and ask the driver somewhere around Santry, would he drive them in? Would he drive a group of them into the city? That's what they had to do. They had no riot shields. There was a shortage of any kind of protective thing. Helmets, for example, there weren't enough helmets. They were sent in without helmets. Now, how can you call yourself a Minister for Justice or a guard, the commissioner, if you have not got those things in place, if you've not been able to look ahead, if you've not been able to look at the riots all around Europe and beyond that have been happening in the last few years. And I mean, the, the attitude of people trying to link this in some way to right wing and all the rest of it. These were mostly, as the minister called them, I think she called them, was it thugs coming into the city and uh, making the most of it. Well, do you accept that point, Finan, that this was eminently predictable if you had looked around Europe and that the rest, that we had sort of believed that we were insulated from it because we're somehow special? I, I thought the, the predictability aspect uh, is there in, in terms of the decline of law and order in the city centre that has been allowed to happen uh, since the country reopened after covid uh, it's evident. I'm, I'm. I walk around the, the city centre on a, on a night and day, um, due to to where our our office is based up up on Tabo Street, and and you could see it for the, the last three years that there was just an element of of lawlessness uh, about it, and standards had slipped. So hence, when events like this kick off, you kind of say, well, you you've basically told individuals for the last couple of years that that there is no recourse. Uh, there won't be a response uh, when they step out of line, and hence it builds up uh, to a to a moment uh, like like that. So a version of the kind of the broken windows thing that if you yeah, allow the, that general you allow culture the slide, to develop. Uh, now look again, uh, Helen McEntee and Leo Varadkar both point out well nobody could have predicted that we would have a tragic event uh, on on Parallel Square. 
uh, where three children and, and their care are attacked uh, so savagely and that that would, would spark uh, an incident. But in, in terms of the, the law and order argument, I would be firmly of the, of the view that uh, an incident of some sort was certainly coming down the track. To what, Connor, do you ascribe it? Because there's been a lot of discussion afterwards as to whether or not it was deliberately fomented dissent and anger created through far-right social media and whether or not it was the sort of the culture of lawlessness exploiting an opportunity. I think it was both. I mean, I think it was very clear from almost minutes after that horrendous act on, part, uh, on uh, near the war, uh, the Gardens of Remembrance, that the far-right were trying to, trying to stoke up the tensions. And I think some within the Guardian were, were mindful that that was happening and they were policing it. But I think it, it, we, we should, it should have been more quickly recognised that this was going to become something that would generate a huge amount of anger. And the the, the far-right people were stoking that anger deliberately. And then, as with a lot of riotous scenes, it quickly descended into mayhem mayhem and chaos. And as Valerie said, the Gardaí were ill-equipped and that is shameful and that shouldn't have been allowed to happen. And then even in, in, in the aftermath when, you know, we borrowed two water cannon from the police in Northern Ireland. Like, I don't know how much a water cannon costs, but I think with all of the money washing around in the Irish economy, we could probably have afforded a couple of them to have those on standby for these kinds of events. Because once it gets out of control, it's incredibly difficult to bring it back under control. Now, I mean, I live in the north inner city and then on, on early in the morning of the Friday, I went into town to r- report on it for the Irish Times and I was absolutely gobsmacked at the scale of the of the devastation. I mean, to see that Lewis burnt out and to see the buses being hauled away, like it was just unimaginable. So on one level, you think, well, that kind of stuff could never happen here. But I think it, it should focus minds because there was a story, a, a poll in the Irish Independent just, just at the start of December that I think it's worth really focusing on. And there was two questions asked. One was, um, do you have views about immigration that you would feel uncomfortable sharing in public? And a very significant percentage... 46% said yes, wasn't it? people said yes to that question. And then another really troubling question was, would you vote for a party that had a hard line? Now, I'm paraphrasing the question, that had a hard line on immigration. And I think something like 27 or 28% of people said yes. So this idea that we in Ireland are in some way going to be immune to the wave of far-right populism that has spread across Europe and indeed in the United States and in, in South America, like that's nonsense. And all it requires is something or somebody to come to the fore and Ireland could find ourselves in exactly the same really difficult position as so many other countries across Europe. Do you think we're at that point where what's needed is a li- not what's needed but the risk is that what arrives is a lightning rod? Yeah, I mean our political system is so different to, to everybody else. There tends to be more clear-cut uh, right-left divides whereas our political system Pacey, is, a, is a descendant of the War of Independence and, and the subsequent civil war and the, the three biggest parties uh, in, the, in the state will all trace their, their lineage back uh, to, to that period rather than a, a straightforward uh, right-left left divide. So it, it, it does mean that there's always going to be a prospect that that something new can arrive uh, onto the scene. Particularly when the thing that's new doesn't... I mean, we use the term far-right or alt-right, but it it isn't a coherent ideology of the right. It is just an angry disenfranchisement with everything. And probably uh, disorganised as well in that there hasn't been a, a straightforward leader who is in any way articulate 
coherent, has a, a, a firm policy base uh, in mind that that is uh, coming forward. You've also seen, it, it's probably been a, a wake-up call as well in terms of our kind of very liberal attitude towards justice. The Dublin riots finished off the following debates. Uh, Garda numbers, people are quite clear now, we need more, more Garda in the streets. Body cams for Garda, facial recognition technology, as Connor was saying, basic equipment from riot shields to, to, to water cannons and the general manner in which we police protests that's all completely changed. Now. But that's a very interesting point that you're right, that it, it did effectively drive the stake through the heart of those which had been issues for discussion. There is no discussion anymore. There is effectively consensus around our no, decision. And, and it's it's also very much put on, on the agenda that the, the, the issue of immigration uh, is an area where government and, and policy makers and opposition alike have have struggled to find some some space where it can be debated. Before we get to the break, let's talk about something a little bit more positive. You two who have so long uh, a history of managing to be at the cutting edge of innovation in terms of how they get their music, in uh, one instance being doing the deal with iPod when it was first launched, being an early adopter when it came to the internet, forcing that album on all of us whether or not we wanted <laughs> it, which we won't mention. And now, The Sphere, the most Im- impressive venue arguably in the world. They have headlined it for, what, three months or something along those lines, Mm. which, given their advancing years, is pretty impressive. Yeah, no, well, I mean, like the residency in Vegas was was remarkable. And I think a lot of people were cynical when they heard that you two were doing a residency in Vegas. Like they were like, oh, that they're being put out to pasture now and they'd be like, you know, Celine Dion or Elvis in his later years or whatever it might be. And it turns out that they were actually revolutionising music again, which is remarkable. And I think they deserve a lot of credit. Now, obviously, I haven't been to the sphere and I can't imagine... Did you not get an early invite? I didn't get any kind of invite. (laughs) And uh, like I have young children, so if I travel, I'm not going to be travelling to Vegas, sadly. Uh, But but it does... I I, I was obsessing about the the streams on Instagram and all that. And it does look look absolutely amazing. Um, So, but I probably... I think... it cost like how what like more than a billion dollars to build, but I would imagine that in twenty five years time that'll be kind of almost run of the mill for for these big concerts and those kinds of stadium or globes or spheres or whatever you want to call them will be all over the shop. You mentioned um, Elvis in his declining years. This reminded me, I know this wasn't intended for our list of. Did you see Cliff Richards' comments during the year about Elvis in his declining years? No, I, didn't. I did. I mean, I did. What, 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 did we said something. Cliff, like, Cliff Richard want, was on. on TV, and they said, "Did you ever meet Elvis?" And he said, "I had the opportunity to meet Elvis and get a picture with him, but because he had put on so much weight, I declined because I didn't <laughs> want a picture of an overweight Elvis and me. And more or less, I was holding out hope that he'd get fitter, and then he died. Oh, fat shaming." I just thought it was the odd. Like, who is the opportunity to meet their hero and says, "Well, not till you drop a few pounds." Yeah, Christmas time, mistletoe and wine. What? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the other thing that we have to talk about which was a big event in the year although to some extent it got eclipsed by everything else but at the time it was fairly major was a US president visiting Ireland and effectively getting on bended knee to all of us to say that we were the greatest thing since sliced bread we will discuss that with Conor Pope Fionnán Sheehan and Valerie Cox after the break we need to talk about the visit of Joe Biden but before the break we were talking music 
Taylor Swift worth a mention, Connor? For, for several reasons. First, she's the first artist to have a billion-dollar tour, so that's remarkable. Uh, secondly, she became Time's Person of the Year, joining Hitler, Stalin, and all the rest. And then thirdly, she ruined one day of my holidays because I spent an entire day <laughs> trying to buy tickets for one of her three concerts in Dublin next year, well, next year, and uh, failing every time. And ticket Is master- this why you picked Stalin and <laughs> Hitler as the comparisons? <laughs> no, of course. Not. Actually, I'm a big Swifty. All my family loves Taylor Swift. She's amazing. But the, 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 the buying of the tickets was one of the most stressful moments of my year because obviously you, everyone wants to go and see her in my family. And like you, we had to pre-register to allow yourself access to the queue. So we pre-registered and we were all delighted because we were allowed access to the queue. I joined the queue, my wife joined the queue, my daughter joined the queue. And it was always like, you're 64,000 in the queue. So you'd stay on for like 40 minutes, 50 minutes, and then you'd be 10,000 in the queue. And then you'd be first in the queue. The only tickets left are 900 euros. No! <laughs> and it happened, because they, they sold them over, th- there was the first day, there was the second day. Oh, so this happened to you repeatedly? Oh, for, for an entire day, we're sitting on a campsite in Portugal and uh, tr- struggling to get Taylor Swift tickets. It was a nightmare. God be with the days. Do you remember when you used to see lines of people on Grafton Street outside HMV <laughs> camping for three and a half weeks to see the prodigy or whoever? It was a simpler time back then. We, <laughs> Joe Biden visiting Ireland. Fionn Sheehan, Ireland editor of the Irish Independent, when you were looking at this with your cynical, hard-bitten journalistic hat on, did you think, this is extraordinary to have an, an American president, even given that he's Biden and given that we know he always liked the Irish, to have an American president spend that long effectively telling us we're amazing. Was that not something else? Yeah, Uncle Joe came and didn't seem to ever want to go back home because uh, he, he loved the affection that he was getting here uh, so much. And and yet y- you kind of felt a little bit underwhelmed, I think, I think at the end. What did you uh, want of, of, of him, of if you know? You probably wanted that Obama moment. Uh, the man got into down, the door and told his dead mother that this was the high point of his career. Yeah, and, and actually his his trip to Ballina in, in Mayo was, was an even more... Uh, enlightening event given the, the crowd that, that turned out uh, to see him. So it just does sh- show you we are still a very pro-American country. Uh, we are still very much... We're, pro, we're pro-blue America. Yeah, we're pro, yeah. We are all, well, I mean, when Reagan... Nationally? Came, when well, Reagan, Reagan is an exception, here, but do you think Trump a, or a Bush a would have got the same? Front. Well, we, we've rolled out the, the, the red carpet for Trump uh, of occasion Ah, uh, but he wasn't well. president then. No. Do you the remember same. the cello? Not the do you remember the cello and the scale. Irish dancing? And you'd wonder now, in the wake of what happened towards the end of the year, would, would Biden get the same level of, of, of welcome or would there be massive protests uh, about the, the war in Palestine uh, tourism but you did also feel and you wondered is this going to be the last trip by somebody we can call one of our own given the massive demographical changes that are happening in the, in the United States that the diaspora no longer carries the weight that, that they it don't carry did. that weight that we're, we're 60 years on past uh, the visit by John F. Kennedy, which was effectively the pinnacle of, of Irish achievement that we could have somebody who emigrated to the land of the free uh, and their descendant comes back as their president. This is one of those things, I can't remember who it is. There's somebody like Robespierre, who we are all theoretically um, descended from, if you happen to be of European ancestry. I assume we will always be able to find some tenuous little DNA Given link. what we did with Obama, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. We have yeah, some but... record in this area. 
But I mean, they're not coming to Ireland because they love us. I mean, this is a complete fallacy. They're coming here because they're looking after their voters in the States. That's all it's about, you know. And I mean, the way we carry on is ridiculous anyway. And then they go back and they say, oh, the Irish love us, vote for me. I mean, when Trump arrived in Dunbeg, I couldn't believe it. He arrives in Shannon, he starts coming down off the plane and we have a red carpet we have ministers. We have somebody doing diddly idly on a harp. We've got Irish dancers, and it's welcome to Ireland, Mr. Trump. And uh, well, he, he's got far more out of Ireland than we ever got. To be from fair, him. Val- Valerie, that was before he was president. I know. Like he was just—he was just a successful businessman. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you believe that, no. God. And actually, I don't think that Biden was. Joe Biden was coming to Ireland because he was courting the electorate. In, in, oh come I know, on! I know. I think most of the time that's why. That's well, exactly why, he why they're. Then? I think he just—he was on a little family he holiday, like effectively, because he stayed. He stayed so long and he visited all of these places. Like, I'd say the the, the attracting the support of the uh, Irish Americans was probably a byproduct. But he just wanted. He wanted this kind of emotional oh, homecoming. Connie, you're and so gullible. No, I, I actually no. <laughs> you need to do a president watch. Don't column. you pee in Connor's chips when he's being all positive? <laughs> no, no, I'm not being positive. I'm saying that it was it was a weird trip for that very reason it was. that it wasn't that he there was, was an indulgence to, court to it the American Irish Americans it was he was he seemed to be like this very old American man coming back to the Alsad for a bit of a family tour and that's when you when you there's thought, a lot to be said for them from an no, economic perspective let's not write them off the Connor. visit to Mayo was so peculiar and he was like he was like basically meeting all of these people playing the green and red of Mayo from the Saw Doctors and quoting the Saw Doctors by the way which totally blew the mind of Leo Moran who wrote the song because he was on a bus home from Galway at the time and suddenly all his phone blew up and he was going Joe Biden is quoting your song and he was like what so you know and I, you think that was all genuine I think a lot of it so I think, cynical. I think a lot of it was. I think Obama's visit was clearly courting the Irish American vote. Uh, Kennedy's visit was clearly courting the Irish American vote. I think Biden's was slightly different, largely because of his age and because of his 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 what he feels as his deep roots within the country. You, you met- get to meet him. I did not. Or stand did you get to stand away? Away? <laughs> no, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Trump visiting when he was just a lowly popular American businessman. On the on the topic of uh, lowly popular American businessmen, it is probably worth briefly talking about Elon Musk's 44 billion euro joint purchase because he included the Saudis just to make it all the more likable uh, of uh, Twitter. He, he he decided that he was going to make the app for everything and the global town square. How's he getting on? He's probably the worst businessman in the history of business because he turned this $44 billion company into a $4 billion company in less than a year. Or it's worth a fraction of what he paid for it. All of these advertisers, Disney, big, big companies are fleeing the platform. It's turned into an even more toxic swamp than it was. He has brought, it has become even more hateful than it used to be. And, uh, Fair play to him because he's rude. Well, you see, explain a thing to me then. Explain a thing to me. He had X.com, he had PayPal, he has SpaceX, he has uh, Tesla. Now, in terms of a legacy, in terms of a, a CV of success, it's very hard to say that this guy does not have the capacity to do good stuff with businesses, whatever about him as an individual. So is this just the early teething phases of the brilliance that Twitter will become? Yeah, in 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 this case though, you you kind of saw his his ideological his ideological standpoint uh, coming into to play uh, as as well. In that he he was coming in with the intention of I'm going to clean up 
this this town a bit like Donald Trump talking about draining the swamp and, and cleaning up Washington and he actually made it more mucky than ever. Uh, and and Musk was kind of the same. He was promising verification of every account. He was promising that trolls were going to be were going to be kicked off. And in fact, he did the complete opposite. The reduction in staff meant there was there was less engagement. There was uh, less um, actual uh, correction of, of of what was was going up uh, on the platform. And I suppose that's the remarkable thing because if you look at it, him from a climate change perspective, this is the guy who made the electric car a, a credible uh, contender in in the car market uh, which ultimately showed you know what you can you can do an awful lot without fossil fuels So and, do you hold out any hope that in behind this somewhere that that quacks and waddles like incompetence there is real genius that we will see emerge? Uh, uh, there is there, absolutely there is real genius uh, I'm, I'm In Twitter? Not sure that in, in Twitter we're seeing that, that coming out in that this isn't something that he created it was something he went off and bought and then didn't really seem to know what to do with it. Although a lot of the stuff, he bought Tesla. Although he went to a lot of effort to try to make it look like he was anymore. That was one of the other odd decisions that he made. It's called X. So you have this huge platform that is almost universally recognised and you change its name. It seems weird. That's where I'm still at the thing of, is this genius that we just don't recognise? Maybe it is. Maybe it is genius. It was also an interesting year for misogyny. We had Joey Barton there a couple of weeks ago um, being, uh, it appeared accidentally misogynistic and then we realised, no, that's honest to God, old-fashioned misogyny and he keeps doubling down on it. And this uh, follows more uh, previous football misogyny with the um, Spanish president of the FA, if you remember. Yeah. The scandal that arised, not just kissing inappropriately one of the players, but again doubling down and refusing to resign and digging his heels in. Luis Rubiales and uh, he kissed Jennifer Hermosa on the lips. Um, terrible controversy and he was told resign, resign, resign and he refused and then he resigned. But, you know, it's very hard to know in the, at the time, you know, they'd won the match. They were all so excited and everything. They were being hugged all around. And I just wonder, was it taken a little bit out of context? Now, one of the things people were saying was that the reason he had to resign was not the assault, but the fact that he withheld an apology. And I think that was probably what it was really about, that he wouldn't turn around and say, look, if I offended you, I'm really sorry. Because in the spur of the moment, with the excitement and all, you know, we might all give an inappropriate hug or something. So I don't think it was the right thing to do, but I do think he should have apologised immediately. I don't know, maybe I am alone in this, but I remember looking at the time and trying to think of, I can't recall a context where I have been so elated about something to do with a colleague that I have kissed them full on the mouth. Did you play football? I played a bit of rugby and I didn't kiss anybody on any of the teams. I mean, in hindsight, maybe I missed an opportunity, but it just never seemed appropriate. Do you think that the, therefore, that the scandal was overblown? I do. I actually do. But I think he could have stopped it if he had just apologised early enough. Um, It's very hard to know because all the time when we're watching matches, you see players, they jump on one another. They put their legs around one another. They hug, they kiss, they tousle their hair. So, you know, where do you stop? Or what, how do you know what's appropriate in any particular situation? I think you stop at kissing somebody on the lips. (laughs) Okay. That's where I'd stop. And I think Anton is right. I've played a little bit of sport badly as, 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 as a younger person. Never really came up. And I think the really terrible thing about it is he took the shine off what was an amazing sporting well, That's a fine point. We're talking about it. 
the Spanish football team because they'd never won the World Cup before and they they weren't the the, the, the favourite side and they just played astonishingly well and they they deserved all the accolades and then but almost as soon as they were lifting the trophy the conversation moved on to something else and that's a terrible shame shame. that's a fine Mm. point wouldn't happen in the GAA anyway (laughs) You have a bit of a you you have had in in recent times I suppose a bit of backlash against cancel culture uh, kicking and I thought this was a good example of where social media and worldwide pressure can actually bring about a result because here was a man who was just not accepting he did anything wrong and ultimately was forced to pay the price but he was dragged there kicking and screaming. Yeah and that seems to be the rule if you're going to um, apologise or if you're going to end up apologising do it quick and do it early before it builds the head of steam that you then can't deal with. We are on the cusp of 2024 I assume you have done little over the Christmas period except um, gaze within to see how to make better versions of yourselves for 2024. What's on the cards Valerie? Well, I don't make New Year resolutions. I go on. No, I, do, I really don't. I mean, we've had a We lovely, can make some suggestions if you'd had, like. I'll make suggestions to the guys <laughs> if you like. I've had a lovely Christmas. We all had a lovely family Christmas. And yes, we're all recovering from that. But the one thing I would like to see a change in in the new year is the deals for carers. Today, New Year's Eve, there are family carers all over Ireland looking after loved ones 24-7, don't get a break really, don't get the recognition they deserve and the commercial carers that look after these people as well are being paid €13 Euro an hour and I would love to see that changing. We're talking about the most vulnerable people in society and they absolutely, you know, we are keep, they are keeping thousands of Irish people in their own homes by looking after family members. I'd love to see a change. The one little one for myself is I want to write another book. That's all. <laughs> Do you, you actually, you want, sorry, forgive me for, for the prospect of having to write a book. You you are eager to sit down uh, and generate 80,000 some words. I voluntarily. Enjoyed, voluntarily. I enjoy it enormously, Anton. The actual process of writing. I love the process of writing, yeah. I've done seven so far, but I actually enjoy it enormously. It's me time. I can shut myself away from everybody early in the morning, maybe. And it's very therapeutic, Because I'm always focused on, was it Dorothy Parker with the line of, I don't like writing, but I like having written? I can understand <laughs> having written, but the thought of sitting down to write. Connor, she has set a very high bar now, don't do anything shallow. She really has, but I live the life of a Trappist monk. <laughs> so there's nothing I can really, there's no resolutions I can really make. Like I don't Taylor drink. Swift concert? Yeah, no, I got the tickets in the oh. end. I had to like, you know, like... But that's it. That's all you got. I'm going to have to save up for them. So that's going to be my New Year's resolution. Finan? I suppose Anton spent more time with my son on a Sunday morning rather than coming into the looks of this place. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> great. Great. The only one concrete resolution has to be at my expense. What's yours, Anton? Uh, so moving on. <laughs> Guys, great pleasure. Thank you very much for giving up your time. That is Valerie Cox, broadcaster, Connor Pope, Consumer uh, Affairs Editor with the Irish Times and Fiona Sheehan, Ireland Editor with The Independent. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year, Anton. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine. On News Talk.